0: You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Today on Something You Should Know, there's an amazingly accurate way to predict if your relationship will succeed or fail. I'll tell you what it is. Then, if time seems to go by too fast you'll discover how to slow it down.
1: One of the key factors is the difference between focused time and scattered time. And when we're focused on just one thing, that makes time move more slowly. When our focus is scattered, time moves more quickly.
0: Also, you know you're supposed to drink more water, but you may not know all the reasons why. And parenting. A lot of parents have a hard time setting rules for their kids.
2: A lot of parents look back to their own adolescence, particularly young parents, and they think, gosh, I did all these things, and how can I really be a hypocrite and stop my daughter or son from doing them?" Well, you can because you're the parent now.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. As I often remind you, there are show notes for every episode and you will find the show notes for each episode with each episode on whatever platform you listen on. Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Spotify, wherever. But I also like to mention from time to time that we also have a website. It's somethingyoushouldknow.net, which also has the show notes and it has photos of the guests and my picture is there, and the images of the books that our author guests have written, and there's a contact form if you ever want to get a hold of me, and more. So once again, the website for this podcast is somethingyoushouldknow.net. First up today, some couples seem happy forever. I'm sure you know some of those couples who have been together a long time and seem just as happy now as when they first got together whereas other couples crash and burn quickly. So what's the difference? Well, psychologist John Gottman hooked up couples to measure their physical responses when they interacted, and couples who did not get along registered higher heart rates, blood flow, and sweat even during the most benign, mundane conversations. Why? They were waiting to attack or be attacked. They were in fight-or-flight mode, which caused them to be more aggressive to each other. By contrast, happy, successful couples registered little physical change. They were warm and affectionate towards each other. Dr. Gottman also noticed that happy couples turn towards one another, whereas unhappy couples turn away. In other words, in a simple interaction, when a husband says to his wife, Look at the pretty bird outside. The wife has a choice to turn towards him and interact or turn away and go about her business. In the research, happy couples had a turn towards rate of 87%, whereas unhappy couples had a turn towards rate of only 37%. One other important piece of the puzzle, happy couples have a habit of scanning most situations to see what their partner is doing right and showing appreciation, whereas unhappy couples look for what their partner is doing wrong and criticize that. People who are focused on criticizing their partner miss a whopping 50% of positive things their partners are doing, and they see negativity even when there isn't any. So here's the payoff. Using this criteria... Dr. Gottman was able to tell which couples would be married after six years and which couples would be divorced after six years with a 94% accuracy. And that is something you should know. Time fascinates me. It's essentially all we've got. And time will eventually run out for all of us. Time is difficult to grasp, and it's difficult to define. I remember hearing that science has no really good definition for now, for this moment that comes and goes, and now we're in a new moment, and now that's gone too. Generally, when we talk about time, it's how to cram more stuff into it, how do we create more free time, and how can we be more productive with the time we have, but this conversation that you're about to hear is more about understanding the nature of time. Marnie Macrodakis has a really great book out called Creating Time, Using Creativity to Reinvent the Clock and Reclaim Your Life. Hey Marnie, so I think if you were to describe people's experience with time today, it is that there's not enough of it, we're always running out of it, and we need more of it.
1: Indeed, indeed. And I think that you're absolutely right, Mike. That is our, our knee-jerk gesture right now. We're reaching for more time. What I hope to offer is a sense that we can create a new relationship with time, that we can create what we want time to mean in our lives, that it's not something that is just quantitative, that it is qualitative so that we're not as consumed with how we're spending our time, but what we're receiving from that time as well.
0: Well, well, that sounds nice and very philosophic-y, but, but what does that mean to somebody like me who says, you know, I, I need more time?
1: <laughs> well, I think there are a couple of things that it means <laughs> to a person who needs more time. One thing is that since we know time is relative... And, I mean, that's obviously proven by science, and it's obviously proven just by our psychological experiences of time. Compare an hour with a loved one to an hour in the dentist chair, (laughs) and you have that experience. Since time is relative, I believe that we can control time's relativity and use some internal tools and practical tools to affect the sense of our flow of time so that when we want time to slow down, when we need more time, whether it's because we're doing something we love and we want to relish it or we need more time to reach a deadline. Or on the other hand, time when, when we are doing something mundane or unpleasant and we really want the flow of time to speed up, we can control that with our own minds and with some, um, some tricks and games and uh, mental attitudes that w- uh, and adjustments we can make. So that's one example of a practical application of what it means to create a new relationship with time. When you put yourself in the driver's seat.
0: Well, give me a tool mm -hmm. tool or
1: two. Okay, well, for example, I think that movement and motion in our bodies is really mirrored and reflected in our our sense of, of the perception of time. Our inclination when we're in a hurry is to go fast, right? Hurry, 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 fast, fast, fast. When actually if we slow down and just imagine that you have all the time in the world and just move in a slower, more deliberate pace, that changes our perception. That makes time move slower. And on the other hand, if you're doing something that you just can't wait to get over, you know, our tendency is to kind of drag our heels and go really slow when, on, when if you can, flip into a physical momentum, you know, get music going, get your body moving. That makes time feel like it's going faster. That's a really simple application that really, really does work. Well, uh, just in our everyday moments.
0: It is interesting that when you're doing something you love, time goes by so fast, when, wouldn't it be nice if it was the other way around?
1: <laughs> yes,
0: yes. But it's not. Yeah. I mean, that's a un- pretty universal experience that, you know, when you s- sit down to do something you really love, ten minutes later, it's four hours later.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, think that, that it's, I think that we can actually harness that and become... Um, I think that time slows down when we are aware of time itself. And so I talk about in creating time, reaching a blissful state of being less aware of time itself, but more aware of the present moment. So really honing in on uh, focus, focus on the specifics, taking in your senses, really being here right now, connecting and focusing on one single thing and that is a wonderful way to make time slow down and give us time that we need.
0: Yeah, because so often we're here and now, but we're thinking about later this afternoon or the meeting tomorrow or you know, the report we have to write, and we're not really here, we're there.
1: Yeah, one of the, when I did uh, some research with some test groups to test different elements that affect our perception of the flow of time, one of the key factors is the difference between focused time and scattered time. And when we're focused on just one thing, that makes time move more slowly. And as you said, Mike, when our focus is scattered, time moves more quickly. And uh, this material really came from my own personal experience, the very beginning when I became a new, a new mother and realized that I was never, ever just doing one thing. I was, if I was working, I was worrying about my baby. If I was with my baby, I was thinking about work. And, and I was becoming this partial person and realizing I was never really there, and no wonder I couldn't grab hold of time, because I was never embodying time. I was chasing it.
0: So we've got focus and movement. W- what else will help us manipulate our perception of time?
1: Mm, I think that there are lots, there are lots of things that, that will do that. Um, I have a couple of different uh, exercises that are <laughs> imagination tricks, really tapping into imagination, because I think that imagination is our greatest human resource. And to just think of our moments, for example, when we want time to slow down, think of mentally taking snapshots of the moment. If you have a deadline when you're needing more time, really stopping to kind of mentally click each moment is a great way to slow it down.
0: I'm speaking with Marnie Macrodakis. Her book is called Creating Time, Using Creativity to Reinvent the Clock and Reclaim Your Life. Are you one of those people who just buys things with whatever credit card you grab out of your wallet? Well, that that could be a costly move. NerdWallet, you've heard of NerdWallet, NerdWallet lets you compare credit cards side-by-side to maximize your spending. So, if, for example, you like travel rewards, you can see which credit card gives you better rewards than the credit cards you've got now. Think of what you could do with better rewards free flight, room upgrades, who knows. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and so much more at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just, you know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why? If there's relief, Why not try it? Claritin-D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin-D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. So, Marnie, when people watch the clock, I assume, and and my experience is, that it it typically slows time down. It's like, you know, a, a watch pot never boils.
1: Absolutely. The more aware we are of time itself, um, I did an exercise where uh, I had people, I asked them to spend um, what they thought was one minute doing a, a creative exercise. And first of all, it was amazing how inaccurate <laughs> our perception of a minute was. Um, something like, you know, 98% of the, pe- the participants were off by uh, more than 15 seconds. And then in looking back at the results of how long is a minute and comparing that to asking their, their perception, were you more focused on the task at hand or were you more focused on thinking about the minute? Well, guess what? When they were thinking about the minute, that's when they thought time was even slower than it really was, when they were really focused on the minute. And when they were kind of lost in the activity, that's when they thought it went faster than it did.
0: Well, I, I can think of the times in, back in school when it's almost time for the bell to ring and you just stare at that clock and it's like, come on, come on, come on. It takes forever. And, <laughs> exactly. and, and that's the, the perception of, you know, clock watching that just time really drags.
1: And I think one of the, one of the things that I really wanted to introduce in the, in the book, which, of course, if we're looking at a new relationship with time, we have to look at a new relationship with timekeeping devices. It's interesting the relationship we have with different clocks in our lives. You know, I have a different relationship, I'd say, with the clock on my oven than I do with the clock in my car or the clock on my phone or the clock on my computer.
0: I want to go back to something you said, that, you know, when when you're focused on one thing, that, that time will slow down. But often when you're focused on one thing that you're really into, that's not true. Time goes so fast because you're so into it. Is there is there any way to when you're doing something you really enjoy and normally time flies by to slow it down and still enjoy it?
1: Yeah, I think that, that what, you've, what you've tapped on, I think, is, is often a state of flow. When we get so absorbed in an activity, it's not even so much that time goes by, so, that it, it's not like we feel that time is going by so quickly, it's that it feels timeless. We lose track of time completely. And that is this, this phenomenon of, of flow. And that's something that I hear from creative people a lot. Is you know how how can I grasp onto those enjoyable moments instead of thinking, oh, where did the time go? And so um, I think again, slowing down, focusing, really really being aware of the moment, taking in the senses, um, notice. Everything happening at once, <laughs> uh, really seeing all the layers, the colors, the motions, the sounds, the smells, these are the things that even when you're doing something that you love, when you want to just expand that moment, take in, take in all of, on all of those different levels, um, sitting with those sensations helps shift that perpetual motion and, and helps us ground us in, in awareness and, and presence. So I think that it is. It's sort of a paradox, because we we do. We want to have that sense of timelessness, but then we wonder, where does it go? (laughs) Right. So I think it's finding, it's connecting to flow, being less aware of time itself, but more geared and anchored to the present moment.
0: I heard some advice once that I tried that worked really well for me, and that was to go from a list-oriented day to a a schedule-oriented day, to schedule Mm -hmm. events by time, rather than start at the top of the list and work your way down, because inevitably some of the things near the bottom never get done.
1: Yeah, and yeah.
0: um, but but maybe the list works for other people. I I don't know, but I was just wondering if if we structure our day in kind of this prison of between twelve and one. I mean, we're so we're going to do this that that that's that that's too restrictive, and that that's making us too focused on the ticking clock rather than flowing with what we need to flow with.
1: Yeah, I think that perhaps what I would recommend is something that is is maybe in between. It's not really a list because I think a list is very, as as you said, it's very task-driven. And, you know, the reality of a list scheduled day is that often if you assign time values to those items on the list, (laughs) you'll find that, you know, you're expecting 30 hours of work to happen in an eight-hour day because our expectations of time are so skewed so often. So that's, I think, a problem with a list-focused day, and I agree with you that that, that uh, a, a schedule-focused day can also be a bit rigid. And so I think that a key may lie in um, making sure that there are those moments that are unscheduled. In the book, I call it unplanning, so that you have that time to allow your to allow yourself to enter. Non-linear space and time, because that's where, you know, that's where the great ideas, the great connections, the synchronicities, that's the terrain where those things lie. That's where meaning lies. And so I think that bringing in unplanned, unscheduled time into every day is so important.
0: And I think perhaps a, a somewhat universal experience with people who schedule their day fairly rigidly is they're always running late. Mm-hmm. And some of the some of the best time management advice I ever heard, and I don't remember who it was from, was: remember this. Nothing takes ten minutes,
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: and nothing does take ten minutes. Nothing
1: takes ten because minutes because
0: you go mm-hmm. print something out, and now the printer needs ink, or you you know, I mean, and you didn't count on that, or you you know, the gas station has a line, or and people don't schedule, they don't allow for those things, and so they're always running late, so they're always feeling stressed, which just kind of crushes all creativity, it seems. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and and I think that a schedule-run day, I mean, again, it puts us back so that the emphasis is on the quantitative. And I really want to want us all to see if we can embrace a qualitative sense of time so that rather than being so focused on how long something takes, we can measure time by our experience, how much you learn, how much joy you feel, how relaxed you are. And I do want to clarify that incorporating new qualitative measurements like these, it doesn't mean that we're foregoing linear methods entirely. Um, As you said, you know, what do I do as a busy guy who needs more time? What I propose is that we become more aware of both kinds of time, qualitative and quantitative. But the qualitative measurements are the ones that are in the long run more important. And I think our sleeping hours are a great example Most of us would prefer to get six hours of really deep, restful sleep rather than nine hours of tossing and turning about. And, you know, we can be aware of the number of hours we sleep, even plan our schedule to, you know, try to ensure that we sleep a number of hours. But we're really more focused on the quality of sleep that we have achieved. And I think that's a great model for evaluating our time. We can be aware of the hours and the minutes that are passed, but the quality of those moments is, is more important.
0: Yeah, it's like at the end of the day, what's more important to have done everything on the list and in the schedule or to have found that aha moment that because you spent a little, little extra time at the expense of something else and you feel great about it? I mean, which, yeah. w- which is the better end of the day?
1: Exactly. Which is the better day? And which, which is going to matter? You know, that wonderful uh, adage of, you know, is this going to matter five years from now, ten years from now? <laughs> which one is going to matter more? Which is going to give you, which is going to place you in the life that you want to live? And um, I think that, you know, we're so driven right now. We're so time-based, multitasking. We're doing, doing, doing and more. But because, as we spoke about before, you know, multitasking is off- obviously the opposite of focused time. So we're doing more and more, but it feels like time is going by faster and faster. And so we feel like we're doing less and less. We have less satisfaction, less meaning, more frustration, more stress. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that exactly going back to meaning and what really, really matters. You know, what time is it really? <laughs> that's that's a, uh, something I use for myself. To tell the truth about time. I say, well, this has to be done in 10 minutes. Really? Does it really have to be done in 10 minutes? You know, does it really? And of course, sometimes it does. But more often than not, if we really tell the truth about the time that matters, we have a lot more time than we think we do.
0: Which is an optimistic note to end this discussion. Marnie Macrodakis has been my guest. Her book is Creating Time, Using Creativity to Reinvent the Clock and Reclaim Your Life. There's a link to her book at Amazon in the show notes. And thank you for your time, Marnie. Appreciate it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it?
1: That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
0: parenting is definitely different than it used to be maybe different for the better in some ways and maybe different for the worse in some ways but my sense is that most parents want to do a good job want to be good parents and a lot of parents struggle with guilt that they're not being good parents Dr. Wes Crenshaw joins me. He is what you would call a parenting expert. He is a psychologist, and he's written a couple of books, including Dear Dr. Wes for Parents and Dear Dr. Wes for Teens. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Wes. And so let's start with your basic philosophy about parenting.
2: Well, my, my one word concept for parents is that they have to be influential, that you really do have to be vested, that you do have to spend the time to build a relationship with your child before they ever get to adolescence, so that you're able to be what we call in uh, in industrial psychology, the parent with referent power. That is, the child wants to emulate you, wants to be like you. And uh, kids aren't going to you know, jump up and raise their hand and say, wow, mom, I'm 15, and now I want to be just like you. But on down the road, they will Unquestionably, the research tells us, revert to parents' uh, way of thinking and being as adults. What does that mean to be influential? Uh, it means to, uh, you don't have to uh, be the authoritarian parent, the, the tell everybody what to do, but you have to be the authoritative parent, the parent that the child believes has something worth contributing. And that takes a lot of relationship and a lot of investment and time. It means that you are an important part of your child's life, whether they will admit to that as a teenager or not. But
0: although kids may have something to contribute, is because I said so still Okay.
2: Well, you know, it shows up a lot, so it hasn't gone away, but it's not very effective parenting. Uh, kids, you know, one of the core ideas in psychology right now is what we call cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the idea that we change how we think about things more than we necessarily are going to change the things. And so kids, to develop a, a, a cognitive a structure, an idea of how they are and why they're behaving the way they are, have to understand why parents are thinking the way they're thinking. And if you tell somebody, uh, you have to do that because I said so, that's what we call legitimate power. I'm the parent. And you, know, you can get away with that for a while, but eventually that's not what kids want to follow. That's not the discipline they want to follow. What's the discipline they want to follow? Well... As a teenager, of course, (laughs) you want to follow their own discipline, but they're going to follow a parent's discipline when it seems to come with some wisdom and with some sensibility. And when it comes from a parent who is respectable, a lot of parents like to... uh, Opine on being respected by their kids, but uh, the better thing to focus on is being respectable, and kids will let the parent have influence over the long haul when they see the parent as respectable as someone they would like to be like. And how do you do that? Well, again, you've got to be really active. Too many parents are awful busy today to really notice uh, on a daily basis what their kids are doing, uh, particularly with teenagers. An awful lot of parents love to rely on uh, trust. The idea that you you know you have to be able to trust your child, and that tends to be more convenient for the parent than it does effective for the child. It makes it easier to not have to be as vested. And so parents have to be involved with their kids. They have to know their kids' friends, and they have to you know have the kids over to their house and be a, a daily part of a teenager's life. And now again, teenagers aren't going to jump up and thank you for that, but in the longer run, they look back and see that that's some pretty good parenting. Do you think that that kids are basically trustworthy and and
0: not not necessarily just teenagers but but uh, or to be trustworthy must you kind of mature into an adult to understand what that actually means?
2: Yeah, it's a really uh, good question. I think children, I was just discussing this this morning in fact with some clients that children are somewhat more trustworthy than teenagers because when you're uh, 9, 10, 11 or so, that's sort of the golden age, where, you, uh, where they want to please you still and they want to uh, live within the confines of the rules. Once they get to adolescence, uh, I, I've done this for 19 years. I've probably seen about 20,000 hours of clients. And I've only met one teenager who told me privately that she was trustworthy. And after she came back from college, I met with her and she said, oh, you know, I was just lying about that. So it, it, teenagers know they're not trustworthy. It's the parents who want to believe in that. And uh, the, it, what you can learn to do, some kids have better judgment than others. So when they're off doing things where they're not supposed to be doing them, when they're not supposed to be doing them, maybe they won't make the really bad decision. And part of knowing your kid is knowing you know, what their judgment is like without giving yourself over to this idea of blind trust. But that sense of judgment,
0: does that come because in, in families – where theoretically people, the children have come up kind of in the same way by the same parents, and some of those kids in the family might be a lot more trustworthy and trustable than others in the family. So where does that come from?
2: Uh, that's such a good point. Even within the same family, each kid you know, needs their own parenting manual. It's quite so hard to write a parenting manual. And what parents have to do is learn to read and understand their kid, which is part of that very active involvement. And some kids sort of lean towards the inattentive side, even if that's not really a diagnostic uh, situation. And some kind of lean towards the anxious side. And certainly the anxious ones end up being usually more trustworthy, if you will, or more reliable than do the ones who lean towards the inattentive side because they just simply don't care as much what other people think. So you're absolutely right. There's variance inside a family, and oftentimes parents get on a parenting model or have read something in a book that you know, gives them these kind of solid steps, these specific steps, and then they try to apply that uh, to all their kids, and they can't figure out why it works on some and doesn't work on others.
0: What do you think about i mean should parents have expectations of children and 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 feel comfortable knowing that those expectations will be met, or is it part of being a kid to challenge those expectations
2: well yeah that's that's all of the above and well put the uh I I encourage parents to sort of have two sets of expectations, their external or public expectations and their internal or private expectations. And so it's okay to express to your child, I don't believe you should drink. Uh, I don't believe that you should be involved in premarital sex or whatever your set of values happens to be. And and I'm going to hold you to that, and I'm going to give you consequences if I find out otherwise. But the internal expectation has to be to realize that there's going to be some of that as part of adolescence. There's going to be a push against those values. And that's what brings you to the really important uh, point of parenting, and that is not to take anything personally. Uh, Parents who get confused about their expectations and really buy into every one of those high expectations are going to be sad and disappointed. And then the kids feel that, and the f- kids feel that they are inadequate. And then that just starts a battle between parent and child. Yeah, I remember hearing someone say that, you know,
0: every parent before they're done being a parent is, becomes disappointed in their child, that, that kids do let you down.
2: Absolutely. And the the point of being a teenager is not to sit around and please your parents. The point of being a teenager is to define your own identity, which means to pull away from parenting values. And the point of being a parent is to try and instill those values and to hold the attention or the influence over your kids well enough so that they will ultimately be attracted to what you want them to learn. And that has to be a process of some tension. It, it By its definition, there has to be that kind of tension for the kids to grow up and be able to function on their own.
0: But in every household, there are rules. And what do you say parents
2: ought to do when children break those rules? Well, I'm a big fan of uh, of consequences, of the natural and logical consequences. I think parents where parents struggle at times is they forget that their job is to do parent things and teenagers jobs are to do teenager things and parent things are setting rules and enforcing them and a lot of parents look back to their own adolescence particularly young parents and they think oh you know gosh i did all these things and how can i really be a hypocrite and stop my daughter or son from doing them?" well you can because you're the parent now and it's often hard for people to really make that conversion you can't live your life today as a hypocrite and be an alcoholic or be violent and expect your children to not follow that. But you sure don't have to worry about who you were as a teenager. Now is the time you can stand up and set those rules and enforce them. But just don't take the infractions personally, because that's not what the kids mean. They don't mean to hurt you with their bad behavior. Always? Oh, I, you know, you, when I say this, there are kids who will tell you, I want to hurt my mom because I hate her so much. Right, right. That's just anger. And if parents respond to that and say, well, see, she hates me, and you'll see this a lot, you know, that's just talk. That's just angry talk. And people say a lot of things they don't mean, and teenagers being at the top of the list. And so parents have to step back and take a breath and realize that's just part of the growing up. So do they really want to hurt the parent? I have seen some of the worst parents ever And the child runs away from home and goes into foster care or whatever. And the minute that parent is sick or at any risk, that child will make a beeline to that parent so fast you wouldn't believe it. And so the kid wants to love the parent. Uh, And even if that's not a parent, sometimes it's the truth.
0: It is hard, though, not to when a a child screams at you, I hate you. It's hard not to take that personally. I mean, this is your own flesh and blood that you raised and now he's screaming at you that he hates you.
2: Oh, sure. Uh, It's a lot easier for you and I to set these good ideals than it is to live with them every day. But that is what parents should aspire to. And being able to manage emotional reactivity in parenting is important because, you know, it's, it's a bad day if the child and the parent are competing for who's the most upset at home. Uh, the parent always needs to win that one. And even if it takes a walk around the block or a lot of deep breathing exercises or any other method, the parent is the adult and should have the maturity to maintain the emotional stasis in the home. The kids can't be expected to, to do that. Do you think that that in a family that
0: there are kids who are just more prone to behave and 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 be compliant and and want to please their parents and and there are just those kids who don't
2: sure. And birth order, the, the the psychologists who are really interested in birth order will always explain it that way. And there's something to be said for that. If the oldest child may tend to be the one that's the leader, the more responsible. But the way I look at it is, again, you have are the kids who lean to the anxious side and the le- kids who lean to the inattentive side. And the more anxious a kid is, the more they will want to please the parent because they are fearful of losing that relationship. And so one brother may be worried about that and he will be the pleaser and the one that's always come and the one who doesn't misbehave and the one who gets the good grades. And then you have the other one who just doesn't care as much. And he's the rebel and the one that stays out late and the one who yells, I hate you. So parents are often just you know, blown away by that. They can't figure out why Billy is one way and Susie is the other. And we think we raised him the same.
0: Well, I appreciate that. You know, I don't think any parent thinks they've got it nailed, that they've got parenting all figured out. There are always questions. There are always People wondering, you know, am I doing the right thing? And it's good to get some real common sense advice. Dr. Wes Crenshaw has been my guest. He is a psychologist and author of a couple of books, including Dear Dr. Wes for Parents and Dear Dr. Wes for Teens. There's a link to his books in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. You probably cannot count the number of times somebody has told you that you really should drink more water. Yeah, we all know we're supposed to drink more water, but besides quenching your thirst and having no calories, what does water do for you? Well, it turns out it does a lot. Your kidneys don't have to work so hard to clean your blood. The kidneys are supposed to flush out toxins, and you make it a lot easier for them to do that, when you give them plenty of water to flush things with. Your muscles will feel less fatigued when you drink water. When your muscles don't get enough fluids, they shrivel and this causes muscle fatigue. Drinking an adequate amount of water energizes your muscles and helps them to perform at their highest level. You'll also look a lot better. Dehydration makes your skin look and feel drier because when you're dehydrated, Your body pulls moisture from your skin to hydrate your organs, and this ends up making your wrinkles look deeper and can even make your eyes look sunken in. You'll also be less hungry. Drinking a lot of water and also eating food that is high in water content helps you feel hungry less often. And since water is such a high-volume liquid, it also helps keep your stomach full longer than other drinks do. And that is something you should know. A reminder that if you ever hear an advertiser on this podcast and they have a special promo code or a special website for you to go to, all of that information is in the show notes for that episode, so you don't have to stop what you're doing and write it down. You will always be able to find promo codes and websites in the show notes. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know